Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride is TJ2, the deuce. Ooh, good one. Got a cap? Bottle cap, yeah. Okay. What are you drinking? Uh, Something bougie from a gas station. <laughs> oh, delightful. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying, I sent Will pictures of what in the past week dogs on surfboard beer, yep. and, uh, fat ma beer, and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, I just I bought this at the gas station. Yeah, it's you were branching out, so you had to go with the four loco next. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then we have our storyteller today. Will the Thrill. Hey, everybody. Oh, nice. So, yeah. What do you have? This is the Alien Nation Honey Blonde Ale. Okay. Yeah. You, you mentioned that one to me earlier today. It is a or good... Or perhaps yesterday. Yes, it is a good summer afternoon beer. Again, it's very crisp and light, so you can go with any barbecue fare. But it's going to go with our podcast fare this evening. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. I just ate some leftover ribs, so it's very much like a barbecue. Yeah, we're just continuing Memorial Day. Exactly. So LD is going to take a bit of a backseat on this one. Unfortunately, she has some mouth issues, um, which will hopefully be solved soon. So she may emote, but uh, I think it's going to be pretty much uh, Will the Thrill and TJ2 carrying episode three of Whitney Houston. Yes, uh, she will occasionally groan painfully in the background. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so uh, we do have some sad announcements this week. We did lose some talent, as many of you know. Uh, one of them was, of course, the singer and songwriter Hall of Fame inductee for the Grammys, BJ Thomas. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, you know, I think uh, he's probably best known for, well, he had, a, he had a ton of hits, actually, but I would say his best known hit probably Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Mm, that's the one mm-hmm. yeah but but now he had and I, I don't know if this is still a record at one point he had the record for the top 40 song with the longest title in history which raindrops keep falling on my head <laughs> uh no with hey won't you play another somebody done somebody wrong song wow <laughs> that's up there with what is the song standing outside a phone booth with mm. yeah Quarters in the nope, pocket. No, no. shut up. I know. <laughs> Standing outside a broken telephone booth with money in, in my, my hand. With money in my hand by, uh, not the New Radicals. I can't remember who that was. 
that uh, that guy, the one, you know. That was his many many hit. Jesus, that was the medley of his many hit. Radio God, you dip. That's what it was. Didn't they rip? Didn't they rip BB um, King on that song? Well, yeah, he get most, didn't he end up getting most of the money for that. Yeah, he's got the vocals in the background that you hear basically throughout the entire thing. That make the song essentially, but anyway, um, yeah. But B.J. Thomas, very talented singer and songwriter, and again, a guy who had a, a, a ton of hits, and including what I, I believe may still be the longest uh, top forty song title ever. And then we we we, we, had, we lost somebody else, Will. Who, yeah. if you just say the name, people <laughs> people probably don't know who they are. But I promise that you would recognize their voice. Absolutely. And that is? Uh, that would be John Davis. Very commonplace name. Very common name, but uh, very uncommon talent. If you've ever listened to Girl, You Know It's True, <laughs> Don't Forget My Number, Blame It on the Rain, then you know the voice of John Davis. Yes, he was one of the actual singers of Millie Vanilli's hits. Uh, not Fab and Rob, who are dancing and lip syncing poorly yeah. <laughs> up front. We might um, add. Yeah. He was actually the the one of the voices that you heard, and uh, I was I didn't I don't think I knew this. I think was a native South Carolinian. Was he really? Um, went to to um, I believe Westside High School over in Greenville County. But Good. you know, it's odd when when the, the the and i can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head will you might uh the stingali who sort of put that whole project together the producer ah uh, uh, no i don't i'm gonna have to look that up but he um my understanding was always that well the, the actual musicians were middle-aged and maybe weren't that telegenic given what his age is uh or was you know when he very sadly died a few days ago he would have only been in his early 30s then so he wasn't no. old well, when he passed away, he was only 66, so. And you got to think that was 1989, that's 32 years ago. Yeah, give or take. So he was in his mid-30s. He wasn't old. No, not by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, but that, that that's somebody who, who probably shouldn't be forgotten because his work won a Grammy um, <laughs> for Best New Artist. And, I mean, that that's they were a phenomenon. That album was mammoth. Are you referring to Frank Farian? As the yes, yes, right there, yeah. And then we had a, another loss, sadly closer to home, too, for LD. And this one was a gentleman from San Antonio, Texas. His name was Glenn Douglas Tubb. Mm-hmm. We lost him this week as well. I, I will come out of my pain to say that. Um, I have been friends with Dottie Tubb, my mother has been friends with her for years. Uh, they were a staple in the Nashville scene. And he actually uh, did, uh, he wrote for Johnny Cash, he wrote for George Jones, Tammy Wynette, he, he wrote Skipper, two-story house. He, he did a ton of music. And I've known that family for years. My condolences go out to Dottie, who I've probably known since I was maybe 10. And yeah. about, you know, almost, almost 30 I- five years or uh, so. <laughs> i would i would say that if you're a songwriter and on the uh on your resume under people who've cut my songs you have cash and straight yeah you don't really I'd, say you're doing pretty, else. I'd say i'd say you're doing pretty good yeah yeah but he will be missed he was this great guy he looked like santa claus <laughs> um you know i never got the pleasure of meeting him but you know knowing Dottie for most of my life 
anyone that was associated with her is good people to me. So he's good people and he will be missed. And he was insanely talented. Now I'm going to go back into my canker hole. <laughs> I've been in a canker hole before. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> All so, right. So, all right, so we're, I was going to say, so we're, we're getting back into our heavy hitter series now. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be part three of the, the great Whitney Houston. Absolutely. Uh, I, I want to say uh, in part two, Will the Thrill, we got to debut album. I think we got it as far as her debut album. Yeah, we got up to that. So we are going to go into the following year, which is the year, a simpler time, 1986. And it's going to be interesting because this span of this episode, just warning here, only covers about four or five years. But what of four or five years it's going to be. So let's jump right back in to Whitney Elizabeth Houston. And as you said, TJ, when last we left, she had a hit debut album, the likes of which have not been seen since. Uh, 1986 would be a good year for the New York Mets, fans of Stand By Me. And it wasn't the best year. This one's for you, LD, for the people of Pripyat. Because we all know what happened early in that year, 1986. They were running a test <laughs> on, okay, you know what? There's a great HBO series that doesn't cause as much pain as I'm in right now. <laughs> yes, aptly entitled Chernobyl. Go watch Chernobyl. It's awesome. It is oh, amazing. God, so good. Is it, is it just me or does it sound like she's got Novocaine? Well, it's kind like of like she's fresh, like she's fresh yeah. out of the dentist and just had a tooth drilled. It's mm -hmm. kind of like that. And the drops make it even number, I think. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's difficult. Whitney is well on her way to becoming a global superstar. Now, as we talked about last week, and you remember this, TJ, she actually started as a model and then sort of moved out from a background singer role into a premier vocalist role. Uh, she, right. she sang back up for Shaka Khan, Jermaine Jackson, Teddy Pendergrass, and of course, her famous mother, Sissy Houston. And for those of you who are going, oh, Jermaine Jackson, Jermaine Jackson, which you had pointed out, TJ, he was coming off of the Victory album tour. So at this point, he was at probably the height of his podcast. The absolute height of his. I, I, one thing that's, that's interesting that I've, I've, I've thought about uh, as I went back and listened to the first two episodes there's there's a web of musical connections throughout her early life. You know, her auntie Re, I mean Aretha Franklin. Yeah. Her mother was a singer. Her aunts were singers. Her grandmas were singers. All this stuff. There's a popular misconception that she's related to Thelma Houston, but she's not. That is correct. Yes, not as far she, as I she know. she does have a lengthy web of connections musically within her family, but that's not one of them that people think she that think exists, but it doesn't. No, absolutely not. And what's interesting is if you hear Sissy Houston. There is a vocal similarity between her and her daughter, which is mm -hmm. quite eerie, in my opinion. Um, so, yeah, and even her own mother, as we pointed out, was a vocalist, and Whitney was her backup singer, and those roles are about to change in the year ahead. So by the time Whitney was only 18 years old, she had record companies out the door waiting to offer her a contract. But as we learned, that honor would eventually go to Mr. Clive Davis. He was the one who signed her to Arista Records. And he was really a mentor to her, building her up through basically touring and meeting all the people in the industry because Clive knew, let's be honest, just about everybody. And right. really, her career was, was just launching at this point. And so it seemed like she would be an overnight success when this 1985 album, Whitney Houston, came out. Little did we know that despite the fact that that album would go on to sell millions of copies and reach diamond status... It's probably this follow-up album that most people know Whitney Houston for. 
And again, her debut album is considered one of the best debut albums ever. But this next one is one I guarantee you all know songs from and can sing along as we go on to the episode here. Now, she was bound for absolutely unthinkable success in music and film. So the reason I have this episode carving out this five-year period is because I think when we're going to end this, it's going to be the high point. This is the golden age. And we know what unfortunately happens in the early 90s. We're going to get to that, but. This is really, I think, the point at which Whitney Houston was really on top of the world. So we take you back to that sweet, simple time of 1986. And she is, TJ uses, you use this analogy, and I think it's very apt. She was America's sweetheart. She was the good girl. Mm-hmm. That's not an exaggeration. Uh, no. She was one of those people who was, who was literally everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a massive crossover success with everybody. Yeah. I, I know, who, didn't, who didn't like? Whitney Houston in 1986. I mean, yeah, you were wrong if you didn't. She, right, and but she had she had an image that was very wholesome, very girl next doorish. I mean, if the girl next door was, you know, a model who could sing, but, right, <laughs> right. But yeah, it's it's not it's really not an exaggeration to say that she was kind of a, had the kind of America's sweetheart mantle in almost every sense. She really did. Yeah, and, and not just sing. I mean, oh, that voice is just unmatched I, it's probably one of the greatest of all time i'm putting that out there right now you heard it on the rock and roll heaven podcast uh whitney was one of her quotes as we all know she had very strong faith and she would say that i believe in god the almighty my parents raised me in such a way that i don't do all the things that others around me do so keep that in mind uh, she said prayer was a big part of her life that she could always anchor herself with god and resist any temptation so at this point, you can see the eerie foreshadowing and where there are cracks in this foundation. As we talked about way back in episode one, which feels like a lifetime ago, Whitney took the divorce of her parents very personally. And even though her father, John, who was managing her career at this point and for the majority of her career until he passes away, he was really this major male figure in her life that let her down. And we'll see this pattern as we go through Whitney's entire life of sort of, you know, these men that she admires in some way, and they let her down, and it leads to utter collapse. And right now, Clive has her under his wing, and so far, everything's going well. Uh, We discussed earlier that some of the things Clive was saying might be perceived as creepy, but they were not. He was really sort of a father figure and a guide to Whitney during all of this. And things were going to get pretty stormy, honestly. By the fall of 86, Whitney was already booking shows across the world. She was playing in Europe. She was playing in Australia. She was working, she was doing concerts in the U.S., also entertaining roles in film and television. And many of those who were close to her said this was the first time they could see her starting to get a little bit frayed. She was, quote, burning the candle at both ends. And of course, there were the rumors that I know, LD, this gets to you about her alleged sexuality. Uh, She was asked whether or not she was a role model, and Whitney was the first to discard that belief. They believed she had a strong foundation, and uh, her mother, Sissy, always impressed on her how brutal the music industry was, but no one could really prepare her for the way the press would kind of pry into her personal life. And I wonder if it's because she was so beloved, and and again, uh, outwardly, She's so pretty and she's so talented and she seemed like such she seemed like such a nice person and all, all this sort of thing that she kind of managed to skate on the I'm not a role model line, whereas Charles Barkley, who said the exact same thing, did not. Correct. 
who caught a mountain of crap over saying saying that back in the what late eighties, early nineties, I think. Yeah, I was gonna say it was about this, no, a little bit after this time period. We're in nineteen eighty six right now, so I think a few years. Yeah. Ago. No, I do remember that. Uh, one of the musicians that worked with her, a gentleman by the name of Bashiri Johnson, who on the surface may not be a name you know. He's a New York based percussionist, and he worked with, of course, Whitney Houston, but I'll throw out a few other names that may strike a chord with you. Uh, Miles Davis, Patti LaBelle, Al Jarreau, Aretha Franklin, Herbie Hancock, Michael Jackson, and one of your favorites, TJ, Steve Winwood. So, so some, some sort of off-the-radar obscure artist. Um, yeah. <laughs> D- digging yeah, into the yeah, I mean, just, yeah, just Michael Jackson and uh, Herbie Hancock and Miles Davis and uh, Steve Winwood. Yeah, but, but if I, and Patti LaBelle and Aretha Franklin. But yeah, nobody you've heard of. But nobody you've ever heard of, really. Yeah. <laughs> LB says, nah. Uh, during this time, Johnson actually was working close with her, said, I think she's handling it very well. It's not overwhelming. For one thing, she takes very good care of her health. She doesn't have any vices like other musicians. Her schedule may be a bit demanding, but I think she's learning to pace herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know about you, but if you hear comments like that of people close to you, it almost feels like they're trying to. They're like, no, 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 no. Everything's fine. You know, don't worry. Well, we... We're going to worry a little bit. That very year, Rolling Stone actually called the Whitney Houston album the best album of the year. Bravo. Yes. Yeah. And like I said earlier, her second album is probably more well-known. I, I guarantee you, you can all picture the album cover right now. It's Whitney Houston in the white yep, in the white tank top. Yeah. Looking, yeah, with the hair pulled back. Yeah, you... You all know it. That kind of shoulder back. slightly askew and uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Very, very 1980s. Very right. 1980s. Uh, and this is a time where most musicians go into the dreaded sophomore slump. But again, Whitney was already defying all the odds, so she's gonna just keep going in that direction. She went back into the studio to create her follow-up record to the Smash debut album. At this point, Whitney even said she was a little bit more comfortable with the process, that she liked the people she worked with, and they were sort of, you know finding their groove together. We saw a lot of the top producers from that first album. Um, Narada, Michael Walden was a big one. He just keeps coming back. Michael Masser, who we discussed. Uh, Clive Davis was, of course, heavily involved in the process. And he actually brought in a notable Broadway songwriter, Tim Rice. Yeah. Tim Rice helped with The Lion King and Aida. He worked a lot with Elton John. Yes, he was a big Broadway guy. Even hey, hey um, Will, uh, can I have a quick aside? Hmm. Do you remember the uh, the the uh, the Got Milk campaign? Yes. Can I? Can we possibly get LD to try to say Aaron Burr? <laughs> uh, she's actually flipping you off. Believe Aaron, Burr. <laughs> Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. God, what a great campaign! <laughs> so, the interesting thing about this album now, if you remember. Back when the first album was being released, Clive was really marketing Whitney Houston as an R&B artist. He said, we're going to appeal to the Black audience first and then sort of cross over. So that was the goal. And, and primed the pump for like two years before the, her album even came out. <laughs> I know. After, all after the quarter, signing her. quarter of a million dollars in promos uh, and then yeah. two years later. But again, he ran the label, so who's going to tell him no? Right. Yeah. So the first album was constructed as really an R&B album. The second one, which is just titled Whitney, is going to be a pop album. Sure, it's going to have R&B elements, and we're going to discuss those in a minute. But I would say this is the one that most people know because it was so prevalent 
on the pop. It was this was this was a pure R and B pop candy gold. Yeah, you couldn't avoid every it. every track is just magic. It is. Yeah. I mean, we we entertained the want to dance. I want to dance with somebody last week. There's didn't we almost have it all? Where do broken hearts go? You're still my man. So emotional. The list is just it's ridiculous. Um, how many hits came off of this album? Now, the interesting thing is I'm not going to share any of those songs with you. I'm going to go in a different direction here. In fact, I'm going to highlight one of the tracks on there that is a mother-daughter duet. Oh. Now, I wish LD was here. She stepped away. But uh, this one was actually featured in the musical Chess. It was written for that musical. No, it's not Murray Head, so don't get too excited there. But this was a, a Tim Rice joint. Uh, the original song was actually written about two women who learned that they're having an affair with the same man. So the subject matter was slightly switched, of course, when uh, Whitney and Sissy took it over. And the stance they took was actually about John Houston. So Sissy sort of sang from the perspective of a, a wife and Whitney from the perspective of a daughter. And so the song actually was sort of reinvented. It took on a whole new meaning. Because otherwise, it, it would have been like reenacting the early life of Rick James. Yeah, we're not going to go there. <laughs> we already did that with the Rick James thing. Yeah, we did that one already. Yeah. So actually, I'm going to share this one penned by Tim Rice. It's from the Broadway musical Chess, included on the Whitney album from 1987. Here's Sissy and Whitney Houston with I Know Him So Well.
And we're back. All so right. Clear, clearly a Broadway feel to that one. It, it does. It, it definitely stands out of, uh, amongst the rest of the offerings on that album, for sure. Oh, absolutely. So can I can I weigh in? Of course. It is very much a Tamarice joint. Mm-hmm. Because if you know anything about Aida, that is written in the stars. That That's... Oh, that's this, right. The song written in the stars just sounds like a reworking, worked version of I Know Him So Well. So... It doesn't shock me. And Can You Feel the Love Tonight almost has that same yes. kind yep. of cadence to it. Yep. Well, Tim Rice, I mean, he wrote a lot of hits. So can't deny that. Guy knew what he was doing. <laughs> so as I mentioned earlier, the song was reworked to really be about the mother and daughter singing about, you know, John Houston, the father and the husband they both knew in different ways. Some actually speculated also this was a bit of a nod to Clive Davis, who also mm. worked with both, knew both women and worked with them, and they had you know, a professional relationship with him. So just before the release of her second album, just titled Whitney, she was actually breaking more records because she just did that throughout the 80s. The American Music Awards took place in late January of 1987, where Whitney took, count them, five, five awards. Best Pop Female Vocalist, Best R&B Female LP, Favorite R&B Female Album, Best Female R&B Artist, and Favorite R&B Female Video. So she took home five AMAs that year. Pretty impressive. The album was finally released in June of 1987. And it's probably, like I said, the one you know the most. I must admit, I went in an unconventional direction with that track, but you guys know the songs. I don't think I, I mean, I play them, that's fine. But you really know the songs on that album. Now, the critics came in with a very... I would say, common review of Whitney Houston at this point, which all can be summed up with mediocre songs, outstanding voice. In fact, it was John Parles of the New York Times who said, 
She's singing by formulas. Her producers or Miss Houston herself has the confidence in the voice. Instead of finding material to reveal her individuality on both albums, Miss Houston is submitting to conventional pop formulas. So, ouch. Um, yeah, damning with St. Praise, kind of. Yeah. It, it, this, this almost goes back to our Eddie Van Halen series, if you remember, mm -hmm. when they, they apparently were going to audition Eric Martin. Mm. Who, who went on to sing with Mr. Big. They ended up choosing Sammy, but he had just put out a solo album and Eddie uh, essentially told him he wanted to audition him, audition him and by way of saying, you know, your album completely sucks, but you've got a really good voice. <laughs> oh, um, El, this is, it, oh, go ahead. No, no I was just going to say, it's, it's very similar. It's like, but I, I kind of don't, I don't hear what they're hearing. Do they sort of stay in their lane of the kind of pop R&B stuff? Yeah, mm -hmm. but so what? Yeah, if it works, it works, you know? It works, and they're, they're good. I mean, they're undeniably catchy, good songs. Like, what would they like her to, what, like, what is it they were suggesting that she sang? That's a good question. And again, I, I think when you look at the production team around Whitney, they knew what was going to work for her. So yeah. it was sort of a perfect storm. Well, yeah, maybe you should sing about uh, people clubbing baby seals, Whitney. You know, get involved <laughs> in some uh, shake it up a uplifting. Little. But yeah, it's almost like well, what? Well, perhaps she should tackle some more weighty subjects. Because I'm trying to think of the '80s. So, like, yes, Whitney, write a song about the Exxon, Exxon Valdez. <laughs> right. <laughs> that'd be that'd be that'd be just pop candy gold. The war on drugs. Yeah, following the footsteps of Gordon Lightfoot. The, the gas oh, crisis. Let's see. Chernobyl, uh, Joe Theismann. Oh, the, the Challenger. The Challenger yeah. in January. Let's see, when, when did Joe Theismann get his leg kicked out? Was that 86, DJ? It was about 86-ish. Yeah, right around 86. Yeah, oh. when Lawrence Taylor made his yeah, leg. The Iran-Contra crisis, the hostage situation. Yeah. Why aren't you covering those, Whitney? Come yeah. on. <laughs> What do you want? Like I got all I got. I know everything terrible about the. You know, 80s. It's the Lockerbie bombing, right? Wasn't that the yeah. 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 Well, that was that was Pan Am Flight One Hundred Three. Flight One Hundred Three. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> so the Whitney album actually became the first album ever by a female artist to debut at number one on the Billboard chart. So there's your fun fact for you. Fun fact. There you go. Now, now keep in mind, she's the first woman to achieve this. There are only three other artists at that point who had earned that distinction. The first one was Elton John with his Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy album, 1975. The other two artists who had done it by this point were Bruce Springsteen and Stevie Wonder. Wow. Which one do you know? Stevie? Stevie. Yeah, Stevie. So you got Elton, Bruce, Stevie, and now Whitney Houston. Now bear in mind that we saw two songs that from the same band that hit number one on the Billboard 100, one in 1964, one in 1977. They didn't debut at number one. However, both Do Wah Diddy Diddy and Blinded by the Light would get there eventually. And those songs are both from Manfred Mann's Earth Band. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band reference of the podcast has been satisfied. Shit. Thank you, man, for Man's Earth Band. Okay. Hate to interrupt their will to thrill, but we are going to have to take a break to hear from some of our sponsors. We're going to do that, and we'll be right back to hear more about the life and times of Whitney Houston. And we're back. Thank you, TJ. Let's get back to Whitney Houston. Now, 
Uh, Whitney was also lauded as the first artist hit number one on both the U.S. and U.K. charts at the same time. The most notable hit on her album was, of course, I Want to Dance with Somebody, and that reached number one in the U.S., Australia, Germany, and the U.K. The album would eventually go on to sell over 20 million copies worldwide. Yeah. Thus, Thus proving an old adage to be true. Which one? Germans love Whitney Houston. They really do. It's crazy. You you see all these songs and singles, they all chart in Germany. They loved Whitney. It's crazy. The week, has yes. <laughs> the week the album was released, the single I Want to Dance with Somebody had actually hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. That was Whitney's fifth consecutive number one single. Now, keep in mind, that put her in a very close race. Five consecutive number ones tied her with The Supremes, Elvis, and The Bee Gees, which meant only one musical act had six at that time. Any guesses as to which one that might be? Beatles? The Beatles, yes. Had to be the Beatles, yeah. So keep that record in mind, because now Whitney is again, she's tied with The Supremes, Elvis, and The Bee Gees, and she's one behind The Beatles. So file that one away. And at this point, you're going to think it's nuts. She's only 23. Wow. 23. So when, when you look back at your life. Right. What have I done? Don't you go, crap. I do that anyway. <laughs> yeah, except for marrying me. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. That's a bright spot. Pretty good. The, uh, yeah, I'm sitting there. See, what? Like, 23. What was I doing? Um, not having five consec- consecutive number one billboard hits or being productive yeah. in any way. I think I was throwing up in an alley behind the lava lounge. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I, I was yakking off my porch, yeah. having just downed a, a bottle of bad gas station orange juice mixed with Nikolov 100 vodka. Oh. Okay, well, you know what I was doing at 23, Ouch. you jerks? I was actually winning an Emmy for Best Ensemble on the Chappelle Show. So, so. Oh, that's right, you were. So I guess, I guess uh, the verdict is in, TJ. You and I. Well, I had, uh, yeah, well, uh, by the time I was 23, I had won first place in a coloring contest at the Rose's Cafeteria. <laughs> and you came in second. Suck, <laughs> suck it, hurt mouth. <laughs> you can't. You can't because your mouth hurts. Yeah. <laughs> So Whitney, at age 23, is now up there with the likes of Madonna, Tina Turner, and Cyndi Lauper, which, by the way, she beat in album sales, all of those artists. Now, now imagine wow. you have to think Cyndi Lauper in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, and again, Tina Turner and Madonna need no explanation. They were, they right. never left. Uh, she was also distancing herself from her family as far as sales, which was, of course, Sissy, Dee Dee, and Dion. So she was really becoming the biggest star in the Houston household. She was was there by this time. Oh yeah, she'd arrived. When asked about being a quote, manufactured star, as they were saying in the press, uh, Whitney actually gave an interview with Time Magazine in which she said, they didn't have to make me over. There would be no Whitney Houston without Whitney Houston. So she was quite quite proud of herself there and justifiably Mm so. Now we, we shift over to Robin Crawford. As we know, Robin was a close friend of Whitney's. There was an alleged relationship. The memoir goes into more details. For anyone who wants more on that subject, you can certainly read A Song for You, My Life with Whitney Houston, which came out after Whitney's death. Read now, all about it at your local library. Yeah, reading is fundamental. Um, 
It was public knowledge that Crawford was actually Whitney's live-in personal assistant. Uh, in the summer of 1987, both of them were actually deflecting rumors about having a intimate relationship. In public, Houston would make statements ranging from things like, why do you want to know everything? To the more Jersey, if you don't understand our relationship, F you. So she was uh, addressing this on all fronts, I'd say. Yeah. Now, this was leading to an inherent conflict with Whitney's mother. Some say the rift really began in 1987 when Whitney actually purchased a multi-million dollar estate just 30 miles away from the family home. The estate was in Mendham Township, New Jersey, and she didn't tell her mother. Now, why would she? I don't know. It's her money. But apparently Sissy took offense to this. Sissy was convinced that her relationship with Robin was, quote, unhealthy, end quote, and that it was just a matter of time before she found the right person to marry. Yeesh. Amidst all of this, Clive Davis is actively working on Whitney's career and trying to take her to even the next level. When the Whitney album came out, Arista Records actually entered a partnership with TriStar Pictures. Now, you might wonder how this happened. Well, if you remember, Clive worked for CBS, which went to Columbia, which was associated with Sony, and they own TriStar Pictures. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a very convoluted route there, but uh, obviously there was a link up there. And at this point, TriStar was known for films like The Natural with Robert Redford and Where the Boys Are with George Hamilton and Connie Francis. The company would eventually become part of Columbia Pictures. This would be at the end of 1987 and distribute films. However, those of us who know Whitney's career would see her real launch in the next decade under a different studio altogether. But still, at this point, there were talks about Whitney starring in several films for TriStar. By the end of that year, 1987, there had been over 10 million copies of the Whitney album sold. Mm. It had six number one singles, and her annual earnings, this will blow your mind, surpassed Michael Jackson. Ooh. Oh. So I'm going to say that again. Wow. In 1987, Whitney Houston, this is according to an article in the New York Daily News, had out-earned the king of pop. That's pretty crazy. Because you, you think about this. You think about the Michael Jackson in the 1980s, you almost can't imagine anything bigger than that. No, absolutely not. But that year, she, she beat him out, which is amazing. Well, this forward. would have been right around the time, um, and I mean, this is not, it's not like he, he had an off year or something. Would this not be around the time Bad came out? Yeah, this is 1987, so. Yeah, so. He was blazing at this point. Jeez. We flash forward to March of 1988, the Grammy Awards. And by that time, Whitney had already taken home two more AMAs, even before the Grammys happened, because typically those happen earlier in the year. And she also took home a Grammy for Best Female Pop Performance. Now, I've mentioned the song so many times, I have to play it. I'm going to play it. It's a very well-known track off the Whitney album. You had mentioned it, TJ. I think it's a, a little song we can all bop our heads to. Here is the 1987 classic from Whitney Houston, I Get So Emotional. Just do. 
And we're back. All right. Fun times. I could, uh, I'm just trying to, I'm sitting there listening to it and I'm like, and so critics didn't like that? What? Yeah, it's, and again, it's it's a pop album. And, you know, it's like, right. it's not that. like, you're right. It's not like she's Tracy Chapman. Yeah. I, I love Tracy Chapman. Right. But I mean, that's, it's, it's, they're two different styles of music. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, yes, I mean, Whitney awesome. was singing, not was singing, not was singing good pop songs. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. And Tracy Chapman sang about, you know, poor people. Yeah, she did. I love Tracy Chapman. I think she's great. Uh, so at the Soul Train Awards on March 30th, 1988, Whitney actually won Female Album of the Year. And she achieved, this is very interesting. She was the highest earning woman of color from 1986. Now, keep that in mind when you consider that she was the third highest black entertainer behind Bill Cosby and Eddie Murphy. Now, we all know... That, that list fits a little different now, doesn't it? It does. But again, think of that time and how popular these guys were in the 1980s. Eddie Murphy was, I mean, beyond reproach at that time. Oh, he was, yeah. he was, he was, he was it. Yeah, there was nobody bigger than him. And Cosby was still TV dad, Cliff Huxtable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and, uh, and, you know, Eddie Murphy was the biggest star in the universe, and uh, yep. Dr. Huxtable was a giant perv. <laughs> we just didn't know it, yeah. Oh, boy. Let's talk more about Eddie Murphy, shall we? Uh, Whitney actually got very tired of the sexuality rumors, so she basically went through the Hollywood phone book and was like, uh, you, let's go out. And she actually would seek out celebrity men to be seen around town with, and one of them was Eddie Murphy. So she would go out with Eddie Murphy a few times. Uh, She also made appearances with, you're going to love this list, TJ, Daryl Strawberry. Wow. Arsenio Hall. Okay. And this is my personal favorite, Randall Cunningham. Wow. Yeah. Now, if you hear, now, the- I had forgot. I rem- I remembered that she dated Straw and mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I don't think I knew that she dated Randall Cunningham. She did. Now it's interesting that you say it because you are a member of you're a journalist of all of those names. Which one are you going to press information on? I, I mean, I want more about Randall Cunningham. Okay, personally, fair. but I'm but I'm but I'm a, but I'm a football fan. So. Right, and that's what the press ran with, is they kept saying, oh, what about you and Randall? So she's going out with Arsenio, Straw, and Eddie Murphy, but everyone wants to know about Randall Cunningham, which I think is really funny. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he was a quarterback for the Eagles and the Vikings. And when asked about Randall, Whitney's response was, Randall, we're just friends. There's nothing intimate. Everybody wants to put me with somebody, you know? So that was her response. Now, wow. Can I just say um, that I think that the press constantly picks the it girl and then demands that they date mm. because if you think about taylor swift in the early aughts or the naughties or whatever they called them <laughs> the naughties <laughs> but but they uh but they they focus on this like it's the most important part of their personality is like who they're dating mm. so i think that this is a systemic issue also i can't really say the word systemic very well <laughs> but i don't think this is new i think it always happened which is why if you go back to, you know, the 40s and the 50s, where who you were dating was sometimes more important than the picture that you had coming out, and the studio system would hook you up with people, and then the studio system would hook you up with people if you were gay, mm-hmm. and they wanted you to still make money. It was Rock Hudson, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and they called them lavender weddings, and you would have to, you know, they would pair, uh, you know, a gay man with a gay woman and make them a quote-unquote straight couple to make their viability sell, like their cash-in availability higher because, you know, you you would hate that they were married, but, you know, 
you still had a chance. And, and I remember this was, you know, to the nth degree when we covered Sammy Davis. Remember, he was basically told he couldn't date a white actress. Mm-hmm. And the studio system stepped in and, like, paired him off with somebody and threatened him. And it was, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's get to that ever-popular figure, the king of pop, Michael Jackson. Did they date? Oh, well, they were seen out and about together. Now, Whitney always said they were friends. Michael corroborated that story. This is my favorite, though. So apparently there was a party in New York one night. Jackson was there, and he had an anxiety attack. So he hid in the closet. Ah. Yeah. So apparently no one could get Michael to come back to the party. So they actually called Whitney Houston. And she went down to this place in Manhattan, went into the closet with Michael, and apparently talked to him for hours and brought him out to rejoin the party. So there you have it. Take that for what it's worth. Uh It's a great account. I just think it's a really funny story. So we were talking earlier about how Whitney Houston was tied or creeping up on number one hits, reaching up for that Beatles record. Well, guess what happened? She had two more number ones. And in 1988, with Where Do Broken Hearts Go?, a song that I got tired of listening to before going to work because I'd get out of my car, walk into the office, and everyone would look at me and go, Will, you okay? And I'd be like, I'm good. So that one went number one, and that gave Whitney, count them, seven consecutive number one hits. Audible. Wow. She Audible. Became, she became the title holder, yep. Audible. Oh, okay, which one? Where Do Broken Hearts Go? You want to play Where Do Broken Hearts Go? Audible. Okay, I think uh, the demand look, is I, look, I will look. You know, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't. The quarterback. If she screams Omaha, there's nothing we can do about it. She has, she's called an audible. Okay, that's that. All right, cue yeah. it up, DJ LD. So we have a special request. This is a long distance dedication. Uh, this is where do broken hearts go? Oh. 
And scene. Okay, long distance dedication there for LD. I know you wanted to hear that one. <laughs> oh, sweet, delicious 80s cheese, brother. Oh, it's delightful. You love it and you know it. Now, this is, again, one of those times where Whitney seems to be cracking a little bit. She did a performance in Las Vegas in 87 where, according to her, I guess, people, they were saying that she was, quote, barely acknowledging the audience. Uh, the performance was very phoned in. And she was actually getting booze by the time she left the stage, which is hard mm-hmm. to believe. Yeah, at this point in her career, she had a rather, uh, shall we call it, tedious run-in with, you're going to love this, Boy George and Culture Club during the <laughs> day. Yeah. What? In which Boy George called her, quote, one of the rudest people I've ever met. But all of this culminates in the year 1988, where she is going to go into a diva superstar battle with none other than Diana Ross. What? Yeah, I don't know if you heard about this. I know, Cheddar's excited. <laughs> so as we mentioned before, Whitney was getting into this deal with TriStar Pictures, and they were actually proposing at the time, LD, you'll like where this goes, a movie version of Dreamgirls. Because yeah. Dreamgirls, of course, had been on Broadway. Now, Diana Ross... And, and Eddie Murphy would go on to actually be in Dreamgirls. He sure would eventually, but that's many years later. Diana Ross already had some film experience under her belt. She did, yeah, but the Wiz was not that great. She did the Wiz. She also did Lady Sings the Blues. Hey, hey, you, hey, 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 you shut your dirty whore mouth. <laughs> well, you know that, you know that was a good. That was one of the good. It's great. It's no, no, Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, Diana Ross. Nipsey Russell. Nipsey Russell. Shut, you, you shut your whore mouth. Diana Ross was 32 when she did The Wiz. It was she, it was harsh. Well, it's interesting that you say that because Ross instantly said she'd be the perfect fit for the, the role in Dreamgirls. Whitney got wind of this and her response in the press was, well, then they would have to retitle it Dream Grannies. <laughs> oh! <God>, snap! <laughs> Woo! Oh, everyone goes berserk at that <laughs> point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah yeah i know right tristar puts the whole thing on hold in fact it won't see the light of day until dreamworks makes it a movie in 2006 starring as you pointed out eddie murphy but also jamie fox jennifer hudson and beyonce, beyonce. queen b yep yep and then uh diana ross apparently in turn said oh yeah well, if you're in it they're gonna have to call it dream bitches <laughs> i don't i didn't find that in my research but I'll look no, that's uh <laughs> Yeah, just a quote I just found, just now, in my head. It's a good one. <laughs> in your bum! You see me bum! I had it in my butt! Oh, boy! Ladies and gentlemen, we rock and roll heaven, I'm so sorry. You see, my brother's uh, been chasing a serial killer for the last two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and it just won't stop. Yeah, it so. just never ends. Ah, oh, okay. So, okay, I'm good. So, a little more serious note. In June of 88, Whitney moves a little bit into activism. Now, this was interesting because in Whitney's contract, back when she first signed with Arista, she specifically excluded any country that upheld apartheid policies. She said she would not perform there. She was invited for Freedom Fest, which I don't know how much both of you know about this, but Freedom Fest was focused around Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday. It was organized by Tony Hollingsworth, who was a British producer. He actually worked a lot with Peter Gabriel. He did a series of documentaries and decided he was gonna launch this Freedom Fest at Wembley Stadium. And he was using the model of Live Aid to promote 
awareness of you know anti-apartheid so Hollywood right. actually put up a fair amount of his own money to do it but then an anti-apartheid movement stepped in furnished the rest and really the rest is history it was one of the biggest political concerts at that time it took place on june the 11th with of course whitney houston i'm not going to name everybody there because i looked at the list and if you look at the bands and the presenters it's about 60 people so yeah. two of the presenters just keeping uh, three of the presenters were whoopi goldberg graham chapman the late graham chapman oh, wow and stephen fry remember we saw him speak hey yeah and that's just three the list is endless but here are just some of the musical acts again out of 60 there's whitney sting george michael the eurythmics al green natalie cole late, tracy chapman the late natalie the late cole. natalie cole simple minds uh dire straits and one that ld loves ub40 ub40 i love <laughs> oh yeah and that's but, just some of the names what about um manfred man's earth band <laughs> Uh, they were not present. I, I really tried to tie it in there. I'm like, please tell me they played Freedom Fest. Please, they please didn't. have done this. There's going to be such a uh, So I had to scramble a little bit on that one. Yeah. Uh, Whitney performed live. The songs included Didn't We Almost Have It All, which is another great song. Uh, love Will Save the Day, Greatest of All, Greatest Love of All, and I Want to Dance with Somebody. Now, Whitney is about to step even more onto the world stage with these next two. In the summer of 1988, what happens, do you ask? Well, I'll tell you. The Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. And the Olympics needed a theme. So who do you think they called? Ghostbusters. That would be awesome if they called Ray Parker Jr. <laughs> the world would be... Oh, no, God, that would, have been, that would have been an epic Olympic theme. Which if Ray I, Parker Jr. and Ray <laughs> If I recall, he was actually signed to Arista Records at one point. No, 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 no. So. High jump. <laughs> So, I say, but he probably just would have stole it from Huey Lewis. But um. yeah, chances are. So, needless to say, they call in Whitney with Narada, Michael Walden, Arista Records, and all the muscle that comes with it. And this song would actually go on to be one of the most significant of Whitney's career. I, I think it's arguably one of her best. Uh, it is put in the pantheon of her top 20 of all time. That song was released as a single in August of 1988. It became the Olympic anthem for the Summer Olympics, and that is. One moment in time. Taste the sweet I 
And we're back. One moment in time. Olympic anthem. Ah! I know. It's pretty awesome. It really is. And that was released on the Summer Olympics album. It was the first single to come out. It gained major traction across the world. And it led to a live performance at the Grammys in February of 1989. And some actually consider that performance one of the best of Whitney's career. She performed that song at the Grammys. I don't know if any of you guys remember that. In the meantime, she won. Yeah, she won two more AMAs, and this was going to be sort of the peak. So we're we're reaching the peak. I set this up specifically to uh, to sort of be the pinnacle at this episode. So despite Whitney's just continued success, she was still getting criticized. The crossover from R and B to pop was something a lot of people kind of poked at, and they accused Whitney of quote selling out. In Living Color took it to the next level, though. Uh, in episodes of In Living Color, they actually lampooned Whitney and they called her, this is their quote, too white, end quote. Mm. Now, Whitney's response was she just kind of shrugged and said, well, look, if you're going to have a long career, there's a certain way you have to do it. She was still making music long after In Living Color was canceled. Uh, yes, which was on for a much shorter time than I thought. Yeah. It, really it's one of those it wasn't that long. It wasn't that long. It was only funny for about two years. Yeah, pretty much. Because then the Wayans family left and it sucked. But that's Yeah, just when they were in charge, it was mm-hmm. gold. Whitney goes back into the studio in 1990 with a new set of collaborators. Sure, she brings along her favorites, the late Luther Vandross, Narada Michael Walden, Mike Masser, but she's going to throw a few names into the bag here. Uh, perhaps you've heard of this gentleman, Stevie Wonder. Yeah. yeah. No? I'm, I'm, I'm familiar, yeah. Uh, another guy named Antonio Marquis, but you know him better by his Moncure LD, L.A. Reed. <laughs> and another okay. gentleman by the name of Kenneth maybe you should say it right okay uh and then Kenneth Edmonds better known by his mon- moniker Babyface <laughs> yeah so you got Babyface and L.A. Reid in the mix along with Stevie Wonder wow pretty much gold Whitney's third album was released in 1990 and this one is of course I'm Your Baby Tonight the album would only reach number three. So for Whitney, this is a, quote, disappointment, end quote. But it would spend 22 weeks in the top 10, and it would go on to achieve quadruple platinum status. And again, this was viewed as a letdown in light of Whitney's other accomplishments. Great songs on that album. I'm Your Baby Tonight is, of course, the most well-known. All the Man That I Need, very well-known. Miracle. She did a duet with Stevie Wonder called We Didn't Know. But I'm going to move again in a different direction. I'm going to pick a naughtier song. Mm. Mm, salacious. Mm-hmm. This track was produced almost exclusively by Ellie Reed. The subject matter is, uh, how can I put this gently? Whitney's lover calls her a different name while they're being intimate. Oh, this is a great song. You know it? Yeah, fantastic song. So we're going to play it. 1990, this one is My Name is Not Susan. Can I ask a question yes, before I play this? Do, does Salt and Pepper refer to that? Yes, they do. Okay. They do allude to that They song. do allude to the song. Yeah. Okay. Because that's, you know, that's one of my favorite songs mm-hmm. of all time. So here is My Name is Not Susan. She was one. 
And we are back. All right. I think that's clearly got L.A. Reed's and Babyface's fingerprints all over it. It just seems... Tremendously so. And I, it's like we were talking as it played. That album was different than the first two. Oh, yeah. The, the edges were just a tad rougher, mm. um, a little, little less poppy. I mean, it wasn't a radical shift, but it was definitely a different sound than than because what she what she brought the first two was slightly R and B tinged pop music, mm-hmm. and this one has the, the edges are just are, are a little bit harder on this album. Absolutely, yeah, in a good way. Yeah, in a good way. And like I said, it's not a massively radical shift. It's not like she came out and started yodeling or you know <laughs> anything. But it's it's but but there are there are. Subtle but very noticeable changes and differences compared to the first two records. Absolutely. And again, this one was considered the, quote, letdown. You know, she had such success with the first two albums that you, it, they're like, oh, it only sold 10 million copies, you know. <laughs> yeah, oh, don't, this one only, what did you say? This one only went quadruple platinum. What a, yeah. yeah what, a, what a bomb. My apologies, right? <laughs> but that would not prevent Whitney from ascending once again to the world stage. Yep. That place in history was secured in November of 1990, but would come into existence on a date I will never forget. As a New York Giants fan, I will never forget this date. And TJ, you know it too. January 7th, 1991 in Tampa Bay. Yup. The New York Giants and the Buffalo Bills. Now, Whitney was slated to do the national anthem in November. It was actually right around election day. And according to the people at Arista, Whitney knew instantly what she wanted to do with the song. She said that she got inspiration from actually Marvin Gaye's version of the National Anthem, which he did in 1983 at the NBA All-Star Game. At the NBA All-Star Game. Uh-huh. Oh, God, that's one of the best ones ever. It, it's beautiful, yeah. Oh, it's, I, I'm back and listening to it. I was like, this is awesome. So she collaborates with a musical director named Ricky Minor. Those of you who may not know Ricky right yeah. away, you know him? Well, you, you know him. Uh, he actually went on to be the band leader for Jay Leno. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... They, who I am currently working Who you are currently working yeah. And if you guys would like to still apply for You Bet Your Life, you can give me an email at lindley at youbetyourlifecasting.com and uh, I'll send you all the info. <laughs> yeah. So she's she's about to she's about to breathe new and exciting life into a 179-year-old <laughs> song. Exactly. <laughs> that's almost impossible to sing well. Oh, yeah. And, it, and that's the thing is, as we get into this, we'll learn that that was actually one of the sticking points for this they changed the time signature so whitney apparently knew what you want to do ricky minor runs with it they bring in the florida orchestra now yes let's address the obvious was it a lip sync performance yep. yes it was it now, sure was it doesn't take away the fact that she still sang the damn thing <laughs> you know right. um now upon hearing the initial recording i actually didn't know this that this performance almost never happened it was submitted to the nfl Four days before the Super Bowl, they called back and said, we don't want to do it. It's too hard to sing along with. So that was their, that was what they're going to say is they're out. Now, apparently, this is the story, and I love this. The phone was handed to John Houston, Whitney's father and manager. And they said, do you have another cut? And John said, nope. How, how, how was Craven? <laughs> I know. He's just like, nope. And so going into Super Bowl Sunday, they were a little nervous because no one knew how this national anthem would turn out. And there is no way anyone could have known how this national anthem would have turned out. This version, which we're going to close out the episode with, 
was actually released as a single and made the top 100. So for those of you playing along at home, that hasn't happened any other time except the 1968 World Series. Wow. Who was? Jose Feliciano. Oh, wow. His version of National Anthem made the top 100. Wow. Well, the, the 19, uh, 1990, so is this, this is right before they started actually doing Super Bowl halftime shows. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so the, the halftime show was like literally nothing. And and my my favorite thing ever is that like in 80, okay, sometime in the late 1980s, the halftime entertainment at the Super Bowl was up with people. <laughs> No, there was actually a Super Bowl <laughs> halftime show that was nothing but like a salute to Disney. And then oh, they, they would do stuff like that, or they would have like local high school or college bands just come play. Which is a cool idea, but I mean. The year they had figure skaters. Well, this is the, yeah, but this this was before MTV and, uh, and Fox started counter-programming against halftime. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, look. We know you're not going to watch us. Yeah. The night at the Super Bowl. We're going to get our ass kicked in the ratings. But their halftime show sucks. And we're going to show like a special episode of Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> Instead of or, 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 or of In Living Color. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. They did it one time too. And they started to, to, to tap away at the ratings at halftime. So that's why they, they went with the big name, you know, so the star-studded uh, shows at halftime. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just a few notes about this version before we play it and, and close out our episode for today. Uh, this version was actually re-released after the September 11th attack. So the same version was released. Now, both times this song was in circulation, Whitney did not take any royalty payments. Oh. She donated the first round of royalties in the 90s to the U.S. military. And then in 2001, she donated to the first responders in New York. Yeah. So that completely went to charity. Now, on a more bittersweet note, this song, this is going to creep you out. This is going to be the last top 10 hit for Whitney Houston. What? Of her lifetime. Yep. She will not attain another top 10 in her lifetime. And so as we close out today. Wait, wait, hold on. Wait, wait. There's one I'm thinking of in particular that's about three years away. No. Hmm. Yeah. This is the last top 10 hit for Whitney. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, but more on that later. Before we get to the version of our national anthem, I'm turning it over to LD for the business. No, I'm going to do the business. Okay. I forgot LD can't speak. So thank you all for enjoying this episode. Do you like this episode? Do you like what we're doing? Well, if you do, you can actually give us money. We have patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven if you enjoy our performance and want to keep the show going. We appreciate you as listeners and we love it when you interact with us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at at rock and roll LT on Instagram where we have a lot of fun. Rock and roll heaven LT. Facebook rock and roll heaven pod. I am still not saying our website but if you want to uh, share ideas with us what do you think of this episode what do you think of other episodes drop us a line an email we have rock and roll heaven lt again that's rock and roll heaven the letters lt at gmail.com check us out and other awesome music podcasts on the pantheon podcast network available wherever you listen to great music podcasts or crappy or crappy ones more crappy ones, yeah. You were, we were pretty good about that. I learned from the best. Oh, who is she? I'll kill <laughs> So we're going to close out the episode with the national anthem, but let's all say our goodbyes. We'll start with LD. Bye, guys. Thank you. And uh, hopefully I'll have a mouse next week. <laughs> we hope so, too. TJ, any final thoughts? Yeah, uh, there, there's, there was one thing uh, to mention about this. Uh, oh, first of all, bye, everybody. Oh, oh, uh, oh. Other thing. I forgot one thing, too. I'd like to wish a... Happy Pride Month to all of my friends 
and our family out there in rock and roll heaven, uh, any of the LGBTQ plus community. We hope you guys have a safe and wonderful Pride Month. Yes, happy Pride, everyone. So the uh, but what I was going to say is the uh, the the set the the stage a little bit. Part of what made this performance so special and why it was so memorable. A, she, she, it's an amazing song and she sings the crap out of it. Mm-hmm. But it, it was an especially poignant moment because the Gulf War had literally just started. Yeah, yeah. And I think, did they not do a flyover? Uh, they did. They always do. They always do, yeah. Yeah, if I remember right, there's a big swell of patriotic pride in general right about this time because the Gulf War has just begun. And then America's Sweetheart comes out and just slays the national anthem and makes it a top 40 hit. Which, which is, never happens. <laughs> which is still ama- an amazing thing to even say. But yeah, so there's, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, I mean, Ro- Arista released it as a single. It was a single. <laughs> ah, so we will say goodnight on that note. Thank you all for listening. We're going to close it out with our national anthem. And I will say the NFL did have a point there. They said no one could sing along with this version of national anthem. They were right. No one can sing it like Whitney Houston. And so... We close out with the national anthem from Super Bowl 25, 1991 in Tampa, Florida. Here is the lovely and talented Whitney Houston with the Star Spangled Banner. And now to honor America, especially the brave men and women serving our nation in the Persian Gulf and throughout the world, please join in the singing of our national anthem. The anthem will be followed by a flyover of F-16 jets from the 56th Tactical Training Wing at MacDill Air Force Base and will be performed by the Florida Orchestra under the direction of Maestro Yaha Ling and sung by Grammy Award winner Whitney Houston.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 